Drew. And we're back. Um, we're not very consistent at recording, are we? No. <laughs> Unapologetically. <laughs> well, that's, okay. that's okay. That's who we are as people in mm. general. Um, well, we're back. No guests this week um, for this episode, I guess. And we're going to do what we did for the last couple of episodes question mark I don't really remember what we recorded recently or what was the last episode (laughs) but Drew has picked something out and we're gonna Mm -hmm. discuss it he's gonna lead a discussion um now I'll just input things I want to say in response to whatever Drew's saying so um, (laughs) (laughs) you know the usual Uh, (laughs) I always have a lot to say um yeah so Drew you want to take it away I just want to say before we begin um thank you for that introduction oh you know it's always it's it's I speak whatever comes to my heart and mind in the Mm -hmm. moment um and we feel that (laughs) I hope so (laughs) because this is a one take one take shot okay (laughs) all right yes so As Nicole said, um, I have picked something out to discuss this week, and that is Walter Benjamin's. Stop. (laughs) Okay, so yeah, um, as probably everyone listening to this knows, I studied German at Haverford College, and so I like to say German names and German words as I think a German person would pronounce them. Are you saying them <laughs> when as I come a, across them? Are you saying it as a German would say it with an American accent? No. Mm, you should try that one day. Walter Benjamin there. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> so Walter Benjamin, you may have heard him called but I'm going to call him Walter Benjamin and mostly just Benjamin because we can drop the first name. I think we've established who he is at this point. Yeah. Um, and um, I might refer to him as Walter. <laughs> yeah. And it's fine if you call him Walter, Benji, whatever, as Benji. long as we know who you're talking about. <laughs> you know, really just take ownership of, of this subject. Um, so. In particular, we're talking about um, Benjamin's uh, essay called The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction, which is his most read essay, probably. Um, Definitely. Um, 100%. (laughs) Nicole, do you know when you first had to read this or came across it? I don't remember the first time, but I remember the Mm. last time. (laughs) And when was that? When um, I took intro to visual studies fall semester of my senior year. Um, okay. I just only remember it because I wrote either a midterm or a final essay on it. Um, but I know, I know I've been, encountered this before that, but that was the last time that I can remember. Or it's the most memorable, I think, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, it makes sense that it would come up in a visual studies course. However, it um, 
has broad appeal to many fields. I remember first coming across, like I had heard of it before this, but I first had to read it for um, an anthropology class. Mm. Um, yeah. The anthropology Ar- of architecture. Okay. Ooh, that sounds good. Sounds like <laughs> a good class. Sounds like a class I would enjoy. It was chaotic. Um, but uh, even better <laughs> you know I go for those chaotic classes um <laughs> I remember someone I know who it was but I'm not gonna mention any names for privacy purposes but for their poli sci thesis defense like proposal defense they were writing their um thesis based on this particular essay of Walter yes so yeah it, travel to poli side. <laughs> yeah, it has it has uh it resonates with many topics in the social sciences, the humanities. You know, if anyone in the natural sciences bothered to pick it up, maybe they maybe. would find something relevant about it, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you would assume so. <laughs> um so yeah, the first time I read it was for um the anthropology of architecture class. Uh, and then like then I just basically had no idea what was going on in this essay it's it's a bit confusing at first um and then I read it um my senior year as well for my modernism class which was an English class um that sounds good too yeah it was with with Deborah Oh, well, Deborah. Fair enough. (laughs) So, you know, I had a good time. We had a good time. I was there in spirit. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean, you were also there because I would tell you everything that happened in that class. It was like my gossip for that day. I was like, oh, what happened? Tell me. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, I think I understood it. I understood it a bit more then. And since then, I kind of had this like, I wanted to know more about Benjamin Kick, so I've been reading more um, about Benjamin and more about kind of the intellectual um, circle and communities that he found himself within. So uh, I don't want to go. I don't want to go down a rabbit hole talking about that. Um, but I will just say that um, he is known for being a member of the Frankfurt School. Uh, which originated in Frankfurt and um, right I think right before the beginning of World War II um, you know that kind of (laughs) period Um, and they were very you know uh, leftist Marxist Um, so they were quickly pushed out of Germany to Switzerland I think and then eventually to the United States and then back to Germany at some point Uh maybe kind of split between the U.S. and Germany and then I don't know anyway that doesn't matter is he German or is he Austrian uh so Benjamin was born in Berlin in I want to say 1892 in the 1890s I'm not exactly sure which year he was born in Berlin he was German by nationality um he was Jewish Okay. So, you know, yeah. um, never really no. quite yeah. accepted into the <laughs> into the German fold, if you will. But um, yeah. I wanted to read this short kind of um, 
contextual introduction to the essay that I found on this website called Modernism Lab. So this is written by Eric Larson. I don't know who he is, but thank you, Eric. So I'll just read a little bit here. It says, um, the essay, so Benjamin's essay, is credited with developing an insightful interpretation of the role technological reproduction plays in shaping aesthetic experience. More specifically, Benjamin catalogs the significant effects of film and photography on the decline of autonomous aesthetic experience. After fleeing the Nazi government in 1933, Benjamin moved to Paris from where he published the first edition of Work of Art, so this essay that we're talking about, in 1936. This publication appeared in French translation under the direction of Raymond Aaron in volume five, number one of the Zeitschrift für Sozialforschung, which is the journal for social research, which was the journal of the Frankfurt School. Um, Benjamin subsequently rewrote the essay and after editorial work, by Theodore and Margareta Adorno. It was posthumously published in its commonly recognized form in his Schriften of 1955, so his writings. Um, so yeah, that just gives you some context um, of how the essay was created, um, which uh, context is everything, as we'll find out here. Um, so any questions before we begin, Nicole, or anything you would like to have clarified for the listeners? Um, no, but I <clears throat> found my notes for this particular um, essay, and it's very nice to look at. I mean, obviously, listeners can't see it. I know. But, you know. I'm very, very jealous. Um, I had I had a section for like the notes and then mm -hmm. I had a section for like because it's a visual studies class so we get we should get shown a lot of um, art or videos <laughs> yes um, visual so I write things visual things so I write <laughs> them in the section yeah. of like the name of the title of the piece of art or the artist I could look at them later on and then random little notes on the side I mean I'm just so jealous of the amount of discipline that you have in writing notes oh well my... it was a that was a good day <laughs> oh it was just a good day well I think so I'm someone that signature someone's that handwriting that changes depending on my mood yeah so I guess I was in a good mood that day <laughs> I understand that I understand that I mean the same for me but I don't know if it's mood so much as it is like um yeah I mean it kind of is mood but it's also like how much do I care about what I'm writing mm. you know if I'm just yeah. trying to get that down on the page it's gonna look like slop and I'm not gonna be able to read it later yeah you know I'm, yeah I'm someone that can go from print to script back to print really quickly mm -hmm. um I'm not very consistent with my handwriting I should okay say. it's still legible but okay. it's chaotic uh, I should that's say that's what matters yeah <laughs> mine's chaotic and often illegible so <laughs> I don't know you have you have me beat there I guess all right yes <laughs> let's get into it we have a lot to talk about we've okay. decided in advance that this is going to be a two-part episode <laughs> so <Yes>. just <laughs> buckle in <laughs> for months probably <laughs> <laughs> this is the first part um, now so, I'm yeah. excited yeah, so here I think we're just going to talk about like the introductory 
theses um, of Benjamin's essay. And it is an essay that's basically a bunch of theses just thrown together in mm-hmm. you know, a semi-cohesive way. But it is, um, it does require a lot of work to put them together. You know, it requires, it's not like it's very obvious what he's yeah. going for on your first reading or anything like yeah. that. That's not his intention. Yeah, to um, throw it back to like Susan Sontag. Yeah. Where you have to read it a couple of times to understand yeah. the essence of her argument. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a lot of academic writing or like, you know, intellectual, in yeah. quotes, writing is um, that and uh, often consciously or unconsciously the author has writes in a challenging way yeah. and challenges you as a reader yeah um. <laughs> I, I also don't remember correctly because it's been months ago but i'm pretty sure that susan looked up to walter oh yeah Did I, I, don't know. I don't remember i mm. Don't quote me on that. I'm Sorry, sure she, Susan. Sorry, Walter. <laughs> um, she must have at some point at least like, you know, yeah. written about him or come across his work and yeah. found it interesting. Although I don't think, you know, she would have been early to do so because I don't think Benjamin has become that um, popular until semi-recently mm-hmm. within um, like academic or academia um because uh you know he was kind of like a obscure figure even during his during his time and then he died kind of young and Uh his work was you know hidden from the nazis thus hidden from us thus later (laughs) revealed uncovered whatever you want to say so anyway yeah she no sorry she did write about him excellent in her third book in her third book she had a whole meditation dedicated to him look at that we're trying to just connect (laughs) connect every every person that we know we're just trying to yeah sorry yeah okay we could start now i'm sorry i just had to bring up susan to connect all of our episodes together somehow (laughs) no we love connections okay so um yeah so this essay has something to do with marxism um so (laughs) let's talk about marxism first and foremost um so marx wrote a book called das kapital or capital um which details how capitalism works or how capitalism worked in england at around the time he was writing which was the mid 19th century uh, he zeroes in on how the capitalist mode of production relies on the exploitation of labor for its existence. So the focus is on labor, um, not on, yeah, the focus is on labor. I'll just say that. Um, and he, Marx, offers a sort of timeline as to how um, capitalism will develop. So he makes these sort of projections about how capitalism will unfold, how history will unfold. Um, And he does this by kind of um, uh, noting certain tendencies within capitalism. Um, And the 
ultimate, I guess, tendency of capitalism is to give way to communism <laughs> as feudalism gave way to capitalism as whatever else came before feudalism gave way to feudalism. Um, so yes, he has this kind of like historical um, focus uh, like on a large scale. Um, and Marx is what we, what we, I don't know who we is, what I, what <laughs> they, I guess. <laughs> Marx is what they would call a materialist. Um, so, um, you know, it can mean a few different things, materialist, but basically it means that uh, he believes and he r writes in such a way um, to, um confer the idea that the material conditions or the mode of production has a determinative effect on social relations um, and on what is often called ideology. Mm -hmm. <laughs> One of our favorite words, ideology. And we can never escape that. Once you enter academia, you can never escape ideology. And you just can't escape ideology, period. <laughs> We're all just trapped in our ideologies. So what is an ideology? Well, it's many things. The way my eyes got and so there's, big. There's no good, one good definition, you know? Um, but basically, it's just like what, how people understand reality or understand their surroundings is an ideology um you know uh so you know you have certain ideas about how the world works and you have certain ideas about what things are and marx thinks that those ideas are shaped by the material conditions are shaped by the mode of production and the mode of production is capitalism that's the way that we understand the world is determined by capitalism Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. So um, Benjamin will talks a little bit in the first few um, paragraphs or pages of his um, essay about a superstructure. And the superstructure is basically just like this common Marxist term for ideology, culture, um, you know, like schools institutions like government um you know and and media eventually will become part of the superstructure like mass media um and that's set against the substructure which is the material conditions um the mode of production um and the mode of production is just kind of like a fancy way of saying how we create what we need to live um mm -hmm. so capitalism is how, is how we now create what we need to live but you know sounds good like oh capitalism creates what we need to live that's great except exploitation <laughs> of labor don't forget that <laughs> don't forget the exploitation of labor yes join your union or <laughs> start a union. or unionize <laughs> yeah, yes. <start> one. <laughs> join one or start one <laughs> you just have two options <laughs> yeah and so like Obviously, you know, the exploitation of labor, we can see that reflected 
reflected might not be exactly the right word, but you know what I mean when I'm saying reflected in culture, like that sort of relation between the capitalist who owns the means of production and the laborer who is subjected to, um, you know, subjected to the conditions that the capitalist has created. Um, that kind of social relation is reflected in culture, in media, um, etc. And so, anyway, <clears throat> art. <laughs> How? What does art have to do with all of this? Well, as you might have guessed, art is, or as you might have, you know, already concluded, art is a part of the superstructure. Art is um, the way we perceive art and art itself is a certain ideology is art is filtered through ideology produced by ideology. Um, art can't escape ideology. Um, you know, we have a certain way of um, looking at art that is always already interpretive. Um, we're never just like seeing like, oh, you know, oh, that's, you know, I don't, you know, it's, you can't even speak about it because how can you talk about something that you haven't already interpreted in some way? Yeah. Um, so art, we have a certain way of interpreting art. Um, and what Benjamin says and what Marxists would generally say is that our way of interpreting art, our way of producing art is determined by the material conditions so um how we understand art is historically contingent um which means that it changes over time um so the the way that people understood art before capitalism was different than the way that people understand art under capitalism i don't know doesn't seem too controversial to me but some people might be like, no. <laughs> and like, when you think about it, like now mm. art is a form of capital. Um, well, yes. Owning a piece of, I mean, yeah, owning a piece of art is capital. And then you have the new existence of <laughs> NFTs. <laughs> <laughs> like we can't, we just, we have to exclude that from our conversation because <laughs> it would just, we would be Absorb here for hours. Yes. <laughs> We'd be like, oh, time to die. <laughs> <laughs> it's time. That's when we're done with we're done with life in that moment. <laughs> We've taken up all the time we had. Sorry. Um but, so yes. Yeah, it's quite interesting. So yes. What if you want to think about it like this, it's that there are material conditions, these material conditions um uh create the way that we think about things and we create art and so um art by extension is affected by the material conditions determined even by the material conditions um benjamin says early on in his essay that the superstructure kind of lags in its response to the substructure so the material conditions kind of progress more quickly than culture does and culture um you know takes its time kind of to respond to these fast moving changes in um what's going on and like you know how mm -hmm. things are produced and with like industry and stuff like that um so what he's saying is that only now 
uh, and he's writing in the 1930s, so at the beginning of the 20th century, is anyone prepared to write about the changes brought on by capitalism, um, brought on by modernity to art? Um, so basically he's saying like, oh, you know, only now, you know, I, <laughs> you know, I am in a privileged position, historically speaking, to write about art um, as it is understood under capitalism or as it is produced under capitalism. Um, so his essay provides these theses on art, um, which, as I said, are trying to um, are trying to convey how art exists under capitalism, or trying to create in a way like this kind of like Marxist aesthetics uh, to you know like kind of understanding um, aesthetics in terms of this like Marxist critique. Um, so that's why you kind of see Benjamin talking about fascism. <laughs> like, it's kind of confusing. Like, why is Ben, what, what does art have to do with fascism? Yeah. Know? And like, why is this, why is art important to fascism? Um, well, anyway, Benjamin says that um, there are concepts of art, like creativity and genius, eternal value and mystery. And these sorts of um, ideas, he says, are outmoded. So they no longer um, kind of, uh, they no longer capture what art means under capitalism. Um, and I think what he means is like creativity, genius, those are things that belong to, are thought to belong to individuals you know, to individual artists. And it's not like the social um, creation. There's no concept of a social creation or collective creation of art. It's just like there's this individual genius and that genius is expressed in the art. Um, you know, it's kind of like apolitical, ahistorical. Mm -hmm. um, you can think of like how we might talk about like Shakespeare or how we might talk about like Da Vinci or something it's like oh they were a genius and like yeah. you know this is you know this is this like work of art that is uh transcends history and blah blah blah, blah. so yeah. um <laughs> Benny says okay those those ideas are all outdated we have to think about art in a new way um because if we continue to think about art in this um you know, outmoded way, uh, he says that leads to, sorry, it just sounds dramatic, but he says it will lead to a processing of data in the fascist sense. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> now that, I don't know. Yeah, that, that sounds confusing, but, um, or it sounds, you know, like overblown and maybe it is, I don't know. But um, what he's saying is that, um, using these outmoded concepts mystifies um, the true conditions under which art is produced. Um, and that's what fascism does, he says, ultimately, is mystify the social, mystify social relations, mystify the exploitation of labor. Um, so, you know, kind of 
uphold capitalism by creating this sense that there's like this racial, you know, genius or whatever, like the Aryan race is expressing its genius in murdering millions of Jews or whatever. Mm -hmm. So, um, <laughs> you know, just fun stuff. You know, Nazi things. <laughs> just casual Wednesdays. <laughs> casual Wednesdays here at um, <laughs> Nazi headquarters. <laughs> Nazi headquarters um anyway so yeah terrible actually but yeah that's the idea so he says art is not the is not does not express any truth with a capital t mm -hmm. you know it's this ideological historical contingent social creation and we have to understand it as such um yeah so basically fascism would would use these concepts of art to reinforce its own ideology racial political mm -hmm. etc um now benjamin suggests that his theses on art his concepts his aesthetics could not be useful to fascism as kind of like anti-fascist antifa if you will I see what he did there, Drew. <laughs> wink, wink. In a way, um, <laughs> because they are "quote unquote" dialectical, which what does that mean? No one knows for sure. But <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -mm. don't ask me. Mm -hmm. I, I, what I think it means is that his theses on art take into account the interrelation of the <laughs> someone someone has said that when you're talking about dialectics you have to do you have to do like these certain like hand motions yeah, where it's yeah. like you're linking your fingers together <laughs> yes 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 or like turning them like this oh i love the good turning one um <laughs> that's one of my go-to the dialect you know the dialect <laughs> just do that and everyone will it least, just it clicks it clicks <laughs> it'll click or they'll just not ask you about it because they'll like, just I don't move know. on <laughs> they're on some other level but um so what i think dialectical means is that it takes into account that interrelation of the substructure and the superstructure so you know you're not just looking at um art as it is in itself you're looking at art as it is a product of material conditions and you're looking at material conditions as they're affected by culture as they're affected by art you know it's like this you got to keep looking back and forth you can't just focus on one or the other they inform each other and make make up each other in some way like uh -huh. there's a little kernel of the superstructure and the substructure there's a little kernel of the substructure in the superstructure i don't know i might have just said that but you get what i'm saying yes um so anyway this wouldn't be useful to fascism because fascism of course would never look you know would never want to um identify the exploitation of labor yes um so really course, because, on yeah, it. hitler doesn't yes. want his precious aryans to know that he's just exploiting them for their labor Ooh, Oop. that tea is <laughs> hot 
<laughs> so that must be ginger tea because it was spicy. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, have, I have to tweet that later. <laughs> you can. Yeah, feel free. Feel free. Don't even, please don't tell uh, me. That's definitely <laughs> the title of this episode. The tea must have been gendered because it's spicy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I just came up with that on the spot. I'm really proud of myself. I'm proud of you. That was good. Thank you. I try. I don't always succeed, but, you know, I give it a go. All right. <laughs> so now we're at section one. Um, <laughs> We're at section one. I'm gonna try to try not to um, you know, get bogged down in the details here, but give a it probably is not gonna work, but I'm gonna try to give an overall picture of what's going on in the first half of this essay. Um Nicole, did you have anything you wanted to add or any questions? No, I don't think so. Okay. Um sorry, I reread the essay before we met but no I don't no problem no I mean problem. we're only getting on to what the second paragraph now really so um that's fair enough that you don't have any questions um so now mechanical reproduction Benjamin identifies mechanical reproduction of art as the defining characteristic of cultural production under capitalism um so what does he mean by mechanical reproduction? He's thinking of, in particular, photography and then later film. Um, so he's thinking of um, art that can be reproduced readily, quickly, on demand. Um, distributed, ma distributed, mass distributed. Um, and, you know, a lot of it. A lot of these like copies, you know, of the same artwork can exist. Yes. Like, for instance, the Mona Lisa. The yeah, Mona pictures of the Mona Lisa, yeah. Or like the Last Supper, like you will see copies being sold at like discount stores or like yes. at the, you know, like you could you're able to own a piece of this um fine art or <laughs> you know um yeah 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 just like it's it becomes ubiquitous you just see it everywhere you know yes. it's not like it's oh it's such a unique thing to see this painting or whatever because yes you know you've seen it everywhere the, the image of the painting maybe not the painting itself, itself as we'll yeah. get into but um so yeah mechanical reproduction he sees photography as having been the game changer. Photography develops in the latter half of the 19th century. Um, he sees that as having been the game changer and that unlike anything before it, it records, as he says, what the eye sees as the eye sees. So the camera is basically an eye, is what he's saying. You know, the lens is an eye. Mm -hmm. Um and that lens is what records the image that becomes the image that we then see. Um, you know, it's not like you're using your eyes and then translating that into paint, 
what do you call that? Strokes. <laughs> yeah, strokes. Pain, <laughs> yeah, strokes of the paintbrush. Um, you're not, you know, carving anything into wood or carving a piece of marble or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, hey, you're literally just taking a picture. Um, <laughs> so um, he says, uh, furthermore, that film is the crowning artistic achievement of mechanical reproduction because it is the convergence in real time of sight and sound in art. So, mm-hmm. you know, film is just photography, um, sequential photography, and it happens, you know, so quickly that we don't notice the individual frames. Well, not always. We don't notice the individual frames, but it just looks like, you know, yes, move motion realistic motion um and of course eventually they added sound to that um so benjamin focuses on mechanical reproduction and film specifically in this essay but that comes mostly in the second part of the essay yes it does so anyway this is characteristic of benjamin's style he kind of just starts talking about something and you're like (laughs) <laughs> okay what's I the don't... point what was the reason <laughs> yes so then he's you know he's talking about the photography and film and then all of a sudden in section two he starts talking about authenticity and you're like yeah. okay um is that when the aura and the quote value and exhibition value comes up or is that later yes. on yes so we have to start talking about the aura which... <laughs> we will get to i have such trouble pronouncing that word i'm like aura 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 Aura. it's like rita aura rita aura (laughs) no we're talking about rita sorry the whole world is talking about rita aura but that again is beside the point (laughs) um so authenticity so all right Uh authenticity what do you think of when you hear the word authentic or authenticity? Um, very good question, Drew. I'll tell you what I wrote down <laughs> in my notes last year. Okay, maybe I didn't write it down. Um, when I hear the word authentic, like authentic, oh no, I can't say it. Authenticity. Authenticity. um oh no it's fine it's fine it's my daily life um i think of something like mm, like authentic like original um it's like the true form like it it, Mm -hmm. or it's trying to be close to the true form you know um Mm -hmm. yeah yeah like i'm just thinking of like authentic food like chipotle is an authentic mexican food (laughs) like you know or taco bell right yeah you know like that's not authentic it's not close to its truest original form Um, yes yes so benjamin says there's something going on with authenticity in this age of mechanical reproduction something (laughs) something has changed Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. he does Benjamin defines authenticity as the presence of the original. So you were spot on with saying original. Um, And he says reproductions are not, strictly speaking, authentic. 
<laughs> you know, they're not the original, therefore not authentic. Yeah. Um, but he says manual reproductions left the authority of the original intact. Okay, so now with the word authority and authentic, obviously we have that A-U-T-H kind of prefix thing going on there. And you mm-hmm. might think of like author, you know, <gasps> all of these Stop. words are kind of, he's kind of like playing with that. I actually don't know if he's playing with that would it consciously because just... I don't know what words he's using in German. Yeah, because we're reading the translation and it's translated by Hannah Ardent. Arendt. Actually, the Arendt. one that I read was translated by, I think his name is Henry Zone or something like that. But Arendt, yeah, she did translate a lot of his oh. stuff. No, yes, he translated Henry, sorry, yeah, Harry, Harry, Harry Zone did translate it. Okay. That's edited by Hannah. Edited by Hannah. Yes. Excellent. Okay, both All of right. them were at play. Yes. So, I mean, it could be that the German words are authenticität and autoritate, which are both German words as far as I know. He could have been using them. I haven't looked at the German version, admittedly. So I don't know. He's kind of playing. I'm playing. Let's say I'm playing with the the similarity. In and I words. support it. Thank you. Authentic, <laughs> authority, and author. So the manual re- reproductions of the authority of the original intact because they did not enhance or add anything to the original. So manual reproductions, like a forgery of a painting, they wouldn't try to, you know, like add anything to the painting. They would just try to reproduce exactly the painting so that people looking at it wouldn't know that it wasn't the difference. Yeah, they would, you know, they were trying to make it look exactly like the original. Um, But it. um, So it doesn't challenge the authority of that painting because once it's found out that that reproduction isn't the original then it's like oh this has no value you know it's like okay who cares about this forgery we want the real thing um so yeah it doesn't add anything there's um no added value from the the manual reproduction thus the um the kind of power of that presence Uh of the original is um protected and reserved um and you know the 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 author the the author is um preserved also as a as as a an important um kind of entity i guess like who did this you know like um you know is this a da vinci or did some Mm-hmm. No, I don't know. I'm trying to think of a good word. <laughs> Some hustler. <laughs> or is this a fake? Uh-oh. Yeah. Is this a fake? You know, what was yeah. going on? Some street artist did this. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway. So anyway, that's that. However, then you get technical reproduction. Technical reproduction, also called mechanical reproduction. Um threatens the authority of the original why because it does add something to the original work or it adds something in addition to the original work i should say um so benjamin says it adds uh uh, or he says that certain images so certain photographs of paintings for example 
um, provide detail that is unperceivable to the human eye were it looking at the original unaided. So you can enlarge images. You know, all of this stuff is kind of like commonplace to us now. It's not that it, you know, it's not like exciting that or, you know, revelatory that you can zoom in on a picture or anything. But, you know, that was kind of like a big deal, I guess. Um, you can enlarge images. Um, there's slow motion. So you can see kind of like how things are moving at a more granular scale, not just in real time. Um, and importantly, photographs of works of art um, remove those works of art from their original contexts. So he writes, and I thought this was a nice line and that's why I'll read it. He says, the cathedral leaves its locale to be received in the studio of the art lover. The choral production performed in an auditorium or in the open air resounds in the drawing room. So the cathedral, which had this very you know, particular location and this very particular context becomes um, viewable, becomes um, perceivable in a totally different context. So in the studio of an art lover, where obviously you can't fit, well, not in normal studios, you can't put a whole cathedral in them. <laughs> so, you know, uh, and you can't put a choral production usually in a drawing room because that's just a living room. And that's not very big, again, in most places, in my house. Um, so <laughs> what he's saying is that the, um, he calls it the substantive duration of the work of art or of the object is no longer of concern. So the personality, the individuality, the authority of the work of art is not really important. So he calls all of those things the tradition. Um, and the tradition is just the collection of all of those things that um, that make a work of art what it, an original work of art what it is. So like the Mona Lisa, for example, we know it's the original or we think it's the original because, you know, we have documentation and testimony and eyewitnesses and history books, archives, museums, blah, 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 that tell us, oh, yeah, this, you know, was painted by da Vinci and it went here, here, there, there, and now it's sitting in the Louvre, not sitting. It's very high it's up just, standing. It's displayed. It's displayed on a wall, <laughs> an entire wall. Yes. Um, and the aura is very well protected. Well, as much as it can be in this day. Yes. It has a big frame around it and with a big piece of glass and a big railing around it. Yeah. <laughs> like, do not get near this. Yes. So, yeah. Um, anyway, so yeah, aura. Benjamin uses the term aura to identify what art has lost in the age of mechanical reproduction. So there's something going on with authenticity. Authenticity is no longer important. We lose, art loses its aura. So the tradition, so all of that stuff um, is no longer important to art. Well, I mean, it's still important in some ways, but it's not as important to art. Um, and it's shattered, he said. And so art is reactivated um, in a way. Its significance is drawn away from itself and that kind of 
um, you know, um, how do I put this? That kind of um, self-involved tradition, that self-involved history that relates itself only to the art itself and is opened up to the present, to um, history, um, history as in not like history as it's written, but history as in how it unfolds, uh, what we're living through right now, and politics, um, basically. So its meaning is liquidated, and it's open to being reinscribed by the masses. All right. So again, Benjamin comes to this point where it's not exactly clear what he's talking about, but it sounds exciting. So, you know, art was kind of this, like, you know, special thing. Um, you know, okay. it had this... Cult value. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. We have to talk about cults. <laughs> I Sorry. Guess. No, no, it's just because the essay or the midterm or whatever I wrote focused a lot on cult and exhibition value. So I'm excited for when we get there. We will get there. So, so I'm just sprinkling in for our listeners to think, to keep these words in mind. Yes. Mm-hmm. Keep them in mind. That's, uh, it will become very important. <laughs> In a few minutes, hopefully, we'll get there. We're getting there. Yeah, so art, he says, was kind of um, special, and it had all of this, like, power, and there was, like, this intrigue and mystery surrounding it, which he calls the aura, um, and this had to do with its authenticity, um, and it's being kind of, like, withdrawn from the general public, (laughs) you know, you can kind of think of it that way. Um, But now under capitalism, um, the aura has disappeared and art is opened up to interpretation by a wider group of people, a larger group of people. um, And that's owing to mechanical reproduction, which makes art more accessible to um, a wider group of people, as Nicole was talking about, you know, seeing images of the Last Supper everywhere, anywhere and everywhere, for example. Um, so we kind of have to talk more about that, but Benjamin moves on from <laughs> from that kind of and mo- launches onto kind of like a different thing. So he's kind of like he does this thing where he kind of like builds up to a larger point but never quite arrives at that larger point it's just you kind of have to synthesize all of these things you know as you're going along keeping them in mind how one paragraph relates to one other paragraph he doesn't do that kind of linkage for whatever reason um so now he's talking about human sense perception He says human sense perception, so how we perceive things, is determined by historical and social factors. So it's not like, you know, the way that I see or the way that you see is exactly the same. And it's not true that the way that we see is similar to the way that people, you know, 2000 years ago perceived things. The way we understand and the way that we see things changes over time. Um, and it's a function of where we are 
and when we are, you know, and what time we are. Um, and so then uh, you can deduce from that that um, social change or historical, important historical change can be inferred from changes in perception and changes in sense perception. Um, so changes in the way that we understand and see things signify or signal changes in these material conditions. Change, so changes in the superstructure signal changes in the substructure and vice versa. Um, so he argues that the decay of the aura is linked to the growing role played by the masses in capitalist modernity. He says the masses have a desire to get close to objects. And he says that this desire is part and parcel of with this part and parcel of this desire to overcome the uniqueness of reality. So no longer do we seek these unique experiences and these individual experiences, he argues, but we try to have the same experiences as everyone else. You know, um, we're trying to recreate um, certain experiences for ourselves um, that others have had um, or that people like us are having um, or, you know, however we understand that. And he says there's a sense of the universal equality of things. Um, and so everything is um, of equal value, essentially. There's no sense in which one piece of art is unique in any particular way. Um, art is this like general kind of experience, I guess. Um, and reproduction produces and reinforces this sense. Um, so what, what, I, what I think is really interesting is he says that the change in sense perception now under capitalism is akin to a change in the theoretical fields under capitalism. Um, and he says that the, that change is the growing importance of statistics in, um, the, in these like theoretical fields. Um, so like, I guess he's thinking of like social sciences mostly. Um, so, so statistics, you know, you can think of like a bell curve, I guess, you know, that center part where the curve is at its peak is creates, um, you know, like an average or what, or what is normal. Um, and it does this by aggregating masses of data. Um, so in statistics, obviously, what is individual or unique is insignificant. It's about what is, um, what is average. So, and averages are, of course, um, these composites of individuals. Um, an average doesn't represent any one person. It represents a lot of people and, you know, this particular, um, or any particular like commonalities that they have. So um, during, with the rise of modernity, um, reality is taken to kind of be represented by 
these aggregations and by statistics. Um, so, you know, we started thinking about like, oh, the average is what is real. Like the average person is real, the real, you know, you can think about that in the way that people say like, oh, you don't know what it's like, like, you know, you're not, <laughs> no one ever says this. Okay, never mind. I have to think of a different example. The, like the expression average Joe, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean? it's just your average Joe is just your real down to earth. Earth, um, kind of mundane. Yeah. You know, yeah. nothing that nothing that differentiates them. They just kind of, I don't know, they kind of blend in into society. Yeah, they conform to expectations yeah. which is and not they, a bad or good thing it's just they just exist i don't know that kind exist. of sounded mean though by saying that but no yeah. but they don't challenge you're not challenging the norms in any way it's just like you are but are they also subscribing to the norms though well you know how much in a way i guess they are yeah, well <laughs> Anyway, got me there. <laughs> the thing is, the average Joe doesn't exist. <laughs> average Joe is just an idea, a statistical idea that we have. The average uh. Joe does not exist. Everyone is unique, Nicole. <laughs> no, that's also not true. Anyway, <laughs> we're, get, we're really getting, oh, no, yeah. we're getting off track. So anyway, statistics become important. Um, now, um, statistics can have a conservative effect so you can think about this in terms of like um like oh um public opinion surveys for example so the news will do these like public opinion surveys where they're like oh what do people think about um i'm trying to think of a good thing like oh god sorry okay so they'll do like okay how many what percentage of the american population um approves of joe biden's <laughs> okay let me start over no, no, okay. you know you're like yeah what this is a it'll be like 50 i don't know 54 percent of the americans approve of joe biden's first 90 days in office and it'll be like 46 percent disapproves of joe biden's first 90 days in office yeah and so what they do is you know they create this image of you know americans um as approving of joe biden's um, work as president or whatever okay. let's say this is just a hypothetical um and then you know you hear that listening to the radio and you say oh all these people approve of joe biden's presidency you know like i think of myself as the average person blah blah mm -hmm. blah, blah blah like i approve of joe biden's presidency you know like, if all these people think it's good, then I, you know, it's fine for me, mm -hmm. whatever. But that kind of um, short circuits criticism in a way, because mm -hmm. it's not like, 
it's not like this person thinks oh you know that's just what people were saying and those people form their opinions in the same way i do you know so it's like they just heard on the news like oh a lot of people think joe biden is doing a good idea so i think joe biden is doing a good idea then they tell that to the person who's asking them the question in the survey and then the survey reports oh joe biden is doing a good job and then you think you know it's just like this kind of loop where there's not criticism (laughs) yeah you know it's just repeating um repeating the same opinions um so that's kind of what benjamin says is going on with perception there's this kind of like flattening of perception in a way um and he's not saying this is necessarily a bad thing um i think that's kind of misunderstood sometimes is that benjamin says like oh the death of the aura is a bad thing and stuff that's not what he's saying yeah Um, it took me a while to understand (laughs) that um when i first you know when you first hear it you're like but i don't see what the problem is that there's multiple Mona Lisa's around. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's accessible, right? Because yeah. not everyone can travel to Paris, go to buy a ticket to Louvre. And yeah. then, you know, but yeah. Yeah, that's not, yeah, he's not saying like, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. That's not what he's saying. Although reading the essay, it's hard, it is confusing because he makes it sound like it's a bad thing. Yeah. It does, <laughs> especially like your first read through. You're like, I don't understand what this guy's problem is. <laughs> it seems like he's complaining about it. <laughs> it's like, is this is this what you're? Is this the hill you want to die on, Walter? <laughs> the aura. Um, yeah. So he's saying that that's kind of what's going on with perception is that people are wanting to perceive things in the same they're kind of like all starting to perceive things in the same way um you know all works of art are just kind of received in this sort of um average typical normal way um so that means that these ideas about art are being created on this like you know aggregate statistical scale Um, the masses are kind of like creating ways of perceiving art all at the same time Um, instead of, uh, you know, like, you know, elites or whatever, an elite group of people kind of coming up with ways for art to be interpreted and presenting art in that way and kind of like slowly getting people to perceive art in that way. It's just like the masses have to decide how to look at pieces of art and how to come up with the normal way to perceive a work of art. Um, so yeah, that's what's going on there. Um, so before the modern period, there was Ara, and Ara was always the product of a certain tradition, but that tradition was always contingent local historical. There were different traditions for different works of art in different times. So, you know, like, he talks about like this uh, the cave paintings or whatever like Uh people who made cave paintings had a certain way of understanding those cave paintings and their importance um and uh, people living during the renaissance have a different way of understanding art um obviously uh so he says that um the original traditions formed around art 
um, were cultic. So relating to cults, <laughs> one of our favorite things to talk about. Um, so related to re religions and ritual. So art kind of served a purpose, I guess. Art um, and the, the purpose that it served was connecting you to these spirits or to God or to something transcendent, you know, not quite of the world, not quite, you know, immediate um, within your grasp, you know, it connected you to something hidden and obscure and kind of far away and, you know, disconnected from all of this going on around you. Um, so it had this sort sort of mystique, um, this sort of magic, he says. Um, and, you know, it's kind of, it, it was mystified. And that's kind of an important thing within Marxism is talking about um, the fetish. So, you know, that's just thinking about these objects that we've given power to, mm -hmm. or that we give power to, thinking about them as being autonomous and having power separate from us that's what a fetish is technically i know, you know people. <laughs> oh yeah no we talk yeah. about fetish all the time in visual studies oh yeah we love <laughs> we hate the fetish actually <laughs> <laughs> we hate it yeah. <laughs> yeah i think a good example of just thinking about like what the fetish is and how it plays a role in our lives is like when you walk into, this is something that kind of came up with COVID, is that when you walk into a grocery store, you usually don't think about like all the people that have touched, you know, your produce and stuff to like get it to that grocery store. But then when there's this like weird disease going around that no one knows anything about, you're like, oh my God, think of all the people that have touched my food, like the people who picked it in the fields and the people who washed it in the factory, blah, 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 blah. So then you're like, oh my God, the fetish has kind of been... Mm -hmm. um, destroyed because you understand that that commodity that you know produce doesn't just you know feed you magically it doesn't just exist to feed you magically someone has to produce that you know labor goes into producing that um mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i'm sorry as you were talking i was looking through my notes because we definitely talked about the fetish and the fetish. Um, the, the, the and the class following um, all I have in here, because we also we spoke about Freud in this class too. Yes. Um, and the one word I have is fetish and cult, comma anthropo anthropological. I don't know what that means, um, but <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. I, I mean, I think the point the point maybe with anthropol anthropological is that. Um, that kind of the fetish starts out you know the the fetish is present throughout time yeah and it, yeah yeah and it's then it's just a feature of humanity yeah a lovely feature <laughs> and i have <laughs> two arrows spinning out of the word fetish and one of them says an object that holds power and then something that is charming alluring alluring but is made um so yes. if that helps people yeah. Basically, <laughs> understand fetish. A, a fetish just takes something and kind of turns it into this like God. God is, oh, yeah. okay. I don't, 
Sorry. Well, we no, might think of God as a fetish, for instance. Yeah. It's something that it has hold on. Like, it's a powerful hold on some of us. Um, it has a powerful hold on us. And it's potentially because we don't recognize that we're the ones giving it power, you yes, know? Yes, yes. <laughs> we're, we're doing the labor. We're doing God's yeah. work, basically. <laughs> All of it. <laughs> yes. Um, that's the idea. Um, anyway, so <laughs> yeah, art served a certain purpose and it was this kind of like fetishistic purpose, you know, and, mm-hmm. you know, the labor was kind of <laughs> not mm-hmm. thought about. It was just about how that piece of art um, had that connection to the deity or to the spirits, whatever. So that's the cult. <laughs> that's the cult value. Um, you know, and he says uh, um, that that was its use value, that art had a certain use value. Um, and that's another Marxist term. And the use value and the exchange value, the use value is like the particular unique function of an object. And then the exchange value is like this abstract value that it has mm-hmm. um, for exchange in the marketplace. So, you know, like, a hammer might have the same value, exchange value as, um, I, I don't know, like a, a, a sheet or something, <laughs> a blouse. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm having, giving terrible examples. But like a hammer and a blouse obviously don't do the same. They do totally different right things. things. Yes. Um, but they might have the, so they have different use values, but they have the same exchange value, theoretically. Um, so the idea is that like art had a use, it had a very particular use value and the use value was very important. Um, however, art began to lose its ritualistic function. So it was less important in religion um, or it was less important as a religious object, mm-hmm. more important as a beautiful object. And that's what he says happens in the Renaissance. So art becomes less important as it relates to God and more important as it relates to this ideal beauty. There's the cult of beauty in the Renaissance. Yeah. Um, but then scary photography and socialism, <laughs> he says, um so i wrote next to photography and socialism reproduction and masses photography is mechanical reproduction of art socialism is the politics of the masses (laughs) you know it's the laborers not the kings not the monarchs whatever the the elites you know so these come along the one (laughs) percent So photography and socialism come along and these pose a huge threat to the erratic value of art, to the aura, as we know. He says that they try to, and they is, who are they? Um. (laughs) Artists, I guess. I don't know. Um, So like cultural elites, I guess, try to preserve the ritualistic function of art Uh against photography and against um 
socialism, so against reproduction and against the masses, by creating what he calls a negative theology or the theology of art, um, which we know as aestheticism or art for art's sake, um, which is what um, Oscar Wilde, especially in his earlier years, was a big proponent of. And he took that from the French um, Gautier and um, uh-huh. Mallarmé and others <laughs> who talked about art as having value in itself as art you know art wasn't didn't have value because it was attached to some religious significance or didn't have value because it was beautiful uh-huh. the artist is valuable because it is art and of course this is an extremely tenuous claim because you know there's no there's no real basis for this it's just an assertion um but anyway benjamin says oh yeah this was the kind of like last um effort the last ditch effort to kind of um preserve the autonomy of art and arts um autonomous value against um its political significance against the masses against um all of that um Mm-hmm. So now <laughs> in modernity, art is divorced, Benjamin says, from its parasitical dependence on ritual. So he's saying art no longer it depends on that sort of um, cult value, that sort of connection to the... Um, hidden to what is hidden to what is obscure um and it doesn't rely on authenticity um for its power instead now art is produced to be reproduced the power of art is that it's available to the masses um that it's available widely um so photography there's no original photo. I mean, you can say there's like the first print or whatever, mm-hmm. but one photo isn't really different than, you know, another print of that photo. They're all the same, basically. Yeah. Um, there's not um, any way to kind of establish authenticity with a photograph. You're just looking at an image taken by a lens. Um, so with authenticity out the door, the importance of art is first and foremost contested. So um, it's not like art is created within a certain tradition with a certain um, sort of um, importance um, that it inheres in it. So art has kind of lost its autonomy and belongs now to the mass. Its its Mm -hmm. meaning belongs now to the masses. Um, it's a matter of politics, he says, and it speaks to the masses on the masses terms. So it's all about the masses now. It's no longer about, you know, some highfalutin, whatever. Um, so art is political. (laughs) (laughs) It will always be political. It will always be political. Uh, so then he switches on to section five mm-hmm. and just talking about 
how art has not always been conceived of as art. And he's thinking about uh, as art as we conceive of it now, which is to be exhibited. So we're going to talk about exhibition value and cult value. So we, they didn't always, like we kind of discussed earlier, didn't always think about art as being um, to be exhibited, but as kind of like an instrument of magic or something. It wasn't just to look at, it was to bring about some sort of religious yeah. revelation. Um, so when it's about magic or when it's about religion, he says it has exclusively cult value. Um, as opposed to exhibition value. The importance isn't that it's seen, the importance is that it makes that connection. Um, and the cult value is derived from its being hidden, kept away, reserved for the spirits. The exhibition value, on the other hand, is um, derived from its being seen by a lot of people, so being open and out there. So what our current, his current, or what was current, sorry, excuse me, <laughs> what was the current idea of art when Benjamin was writing that was a function of its increasing exhibition value. Um, so we think of art in that time as being something that is to be seen, that's, you know, to be, to have some spectators in front of it all the time in a museum, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, how do we think about the kind of material changes that led to the increase in the exhibition value? Well, I wrote down some ideas. You can think about the end of feudalism. Um, so, you know, it's no longer just a very few select number of families ruling, you know, and, and I'm talking about in Europe. Um, you know, it's not just about if, if the, an elite in that sense um there's the rise of capitalism so there's the merchant class the bourgeoisie there's more of them um that have political power um and then you have the protestant reformation which is all about interpreting god's word um the bible yourself and it's not about just taking um, the interpretation of the church or the interpretation of the priest. Um, it's about creating your own interpretation um, and about thinking about these things for yourself, about reading the text yourself. So, yeah, you can just think about the Bible in that way, I guess. Uh -huh. Cult value, only, you know, a few priests are reading it to exhibition value everyone sees it and everyone's reading it yep <laughs> okay <laughs> get it got it <laughs> excellent um did you want to add anything about exhibition value and cult value um no you basically no. got it okay <laughs> thank you <laughs> um yeah so yeah, so now everything's about exhibition value. Benjamin says that with capitalist modernity, um, we ha are experiencing the absolute emphasis or the absolute dominance of exhibition value. Um, so we have to rethink our concept of art, totally. We have to yes. get rid of that idea of art 
that had anything yes. to do with the cult. <laughs> it's all exhibition. Um, so. Okay, he goes into a little bit more history with Section 6. And he just says like, oh, you know, um, it was inevitable that um, exhibition value would totally overtake cult value with photography. But photography gave some resistance because at first um, photographers and uh, photography were preoccupied with portraiture. Yes. Um, and... Taking... Yes. Yes. Keep going. It, it was. It was. <laughs> it was. It was. Uh, it's like the first form of surveillance in a way. Um, yes. Because the first, like, well, other than like Bridge family being able to find um, get portraits, but that's a different story. But as a term of like a mass use of photography was That's like for true. um was for mic shots basically yeah so it was yeah. like essentially the first form of mass surveillance by yes. the state <laughs> onto you its know, people <laughs> yeah that's really interesting benjamin doesn't bring that up in here but that's actually like the under yeah the under world of the port the portraiture that he's talking about. he's talking about yeah. like this nice like oh taking pictures of your loved ones yeah and like if you were able to afford for like a photograph it was usually like you would save up or you were rich back then and you were able to get like a portrait of your fam your loved ones right mm -hmm. but in terms of its mass use it was basically for mugshots and Yes. I mean, it's yeah. used by the state, I guess I should just say, or the government or whatever you want to reform. Yeah. And then, of course, people understand it as being useful in that way. <laughs> yeah. Extension. Yeah. With like, yeah, it's interesting that Benjamin doesn't talk about that because or I don't know. I mean, I'm sure he was aware of it because that was like a uh, a um, an invention uh, of the police in Paris, mm -hmm. I believe was that whole like Bertionnage um, taking pictures of the criminals so that they can mm -hmm. be identified and creating that like criminal type mm -hmm. uh, too, which plays into the statistics also that Benjamin was talking. Very interesting. Yeah, it all I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, it was, but sorry, but when I first realized that it was in this class too, cause I think it was just, it was just back to back to back mm -hmm. where all these classes were happening. Uh, and when it hits you, like, photography wasn't always, like, great and dandy, right? It was, no, it was used as, like, a form of mass surveillance on its people. Yes. Uh, and that kind of, like, trips you up <laughs> in a way. Well, or I think we think of, like, now, like, oh, yeah, of course, now photography is being used as mass surveillance. Mm-hmm like everything is mass surveillance now but like back in the day you know they were just like little cameras and mm -hmm. they were harmless that you like, had no <laughs> they've yeah. always been used as <laughs> or like it was a photo yeah. that you had to sit there for hours yeah to, to print out of the camera like no no it was also used as mass surveillance <laughs> yeah 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 so it's interesting that he doesn't talk about um 
that but he talks about um like you were talking like that bourgeois kind of portraiture of loved ones and he talks about how that retains an aura in a way because the photograph captures the individuality and the characteristics of that person and it yes. kind of has that sort of cult value where you have that like little image you know of maybe especially your deceased loved one yeah. you know kind of sitting somewhere in your drawing room and you like go up to it and you're like reminded of that person and you know you kind of feel like they're there um and that that image is kind of producing Mm -hmm. um the presence of that loved one even though you know it's just some color on a piece of paper you (laughs) know that you that someone colored that someone (laughs) produced in a lab um uh yeah so you can also think about that in terms of the criminal in a different way um kind of like oh these little images of these people who stole some bread from the store being kept in the Mm-hmm. Um, being kept in the police prefecture and you like go and look at them and you're like ah there's the criminal that's there he is and mm. it's the image producing the criminal because you know it's in a book that says criminals <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah but anyway <laughs> again <laughs> this is very interesting but kind of besides <laughs> our point but I encourage our listeners to look more into this discussion yes if they if they want um so inclined (laughs) what benjamin now this is kind of interesting benjamin identifies a an artist whose work kind of um uh uh is the tipping point that lands photography into um to um, dominance of exhibition value and Mm -hmm. he says that it's at jay and so at jay was this like photographer um who took pictures at the turn of the century in paris um and benjamin says that in his pictures of these empty parisian streets the man disappears from the photograph Mm -hmm. so you know the individual people disappear from the photographs and you're just left with these images of um of buildings and streets and stores and stuff um but there are no people in them it's just that like kind of like city structure image just kind Mm -hmm. of there not really understanding how people um interact with that not seeing yourself even necessarily interacting Mm -hmm. with that um so he says that these photos are like scenes of crimes and they're used to establish evidence um of evidence of historical occurrences evidence of um uh of the past in some ways how how things were um so evidence obviously is about exhibition value it's about proving something to people by showing it to them. You want to show it to them. Um, you want to show it to people so that they're convinced of your what you're saying. Um, so at J, I mean, I'm not exactly sure what Benjamin is trying, what historical occurrences he's trying to um, say at J was proving, but at J took pictures of like old Paris, like medieval structures that existed in Paris before they were knocked down um, during the house I think it's called. So 
they built all of those buildings that we now know of as you know um characteristic of paris Mm -hmm. um you know you see one you're like oh that must be in paris before that you know that's just yeah that didn't exist before the 19th century um so these images have they 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 have a certain political significance um and they they have a certain interpretation of history and of events um because they're not focused on the individual um they're focused on these things that are created by collectives um so they bring to mind social relations and they bring to mind uh labor and material conditions i guess is what he's kind of saying um so he says that photos also they're distributed in magazines and they're distributed in books and books and magazines use images to bolster arguments or to frame arguments and they frame images with captions he says and you know with narratives and stuff so photos are they're no longer they don't stand on their own you know Uh there's this idea that you have to you know read certain things to understand a photograph or you have to you know listen to some explanation from someone to understand a photograph or you have to understand a certain context to understand a photograph um it's not like the photograph in itself is um telling you something that about some the photograph itself isn't telling you something about something detached from the outside world basically it's telling you about the world that you're in um so yeah art is no longer a valuable instrument to a transcendent being or to an ideal or even to itself it becomes an instrument of politics of contingency of history it directs itself in a way toward current conditions and forms a certain perception of the immediate world um is kind of benjamin's argument to this point um is that um yeah the the work we can't understand art as being detached from politics now basically we have to understand um we have to understand art and we have to understand um we have to understand art as being a product of a certain moment and a certain history and a certain um and a certain um political era or a certain set of social relations i guess um yeah so that's the first half of the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction wow i mean it kind of just boils down to like oh before you know before they didn't have to think about how art is produced by you know social conditions they just thought like oh this is a nice piece Mm -hmm. of art and you know it's just trying to be beautiful or you know this is a nice piece of art it's about god 
arts, blah, 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 blah. But now we have to think about art as like, this is a piece of art and it's a product of yeah. these potentially violent clashes between <laughs> yeah. between the classes. <laughs> so Wow. I know. It's really it- exciting, isn't it? Yeah. And it's yeah, it definitely is making me rethink everything <laughs> about it. Because it's one of those essays that's hard to understand. Obviously, I haven't read the essay in a very long time. So hearing you break it down is very refreshing. Well, thank you. Mm-hmm. It's one of those essays, too, where every time you read it, you pick up something on else. something else. And you're like, your understanding of it is enhanced yeah like or changes yeah because um I was just looking at my notes and most of what we really focused on class that day was like authenticity exhibition value cult value Mm -hmm. and not so much the capitalism socialism aspect because I I mean this is an essay you could probably have a whole semester, like a whole oh, class yeah. on. Um, so trying to fit it in an hour and a half. We're trying to talk about everyone else that's important to visual studies. Um, and you have to break down what's important, I guess, in a way. Yeah. Yeah, I think it, it to, the, to understand this essay, you have to have, um, you have to have a lot of background in what Benjamin is talking about. And yeah. that's just not the way that um, most people approach undergraduate classes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're an undergraduate. You don't have a lot of background. Especially when anything, you have, really. when you're first year and haven't yeah. read Marxism. Yeah. Or you're senior and you have. Um, yeah. Like it's a wide range and professors have to tailor it so everyone gets something out of it, you know? And I've always felt that when professors bring this up in a class, it's more about just making students aware that this essay exists more so than being like, you need to understand this right yeah. now and you need to apply it. Yeah. And it's more like you're going to encounter this essay again. If you continue academia and you're the social sciences and humanities, you need to understand it's going to come up especially if you're in like the visuals aspect of it yeah um yeah yeah I mean I just think it's such a great it is it's a it's a it's a hard essay um because it does rely on a lot of um background but it's also great because it connects so many yeah different things and ideas yeah um, and I think that's what's great about it um mm-hmm. everyone knows these concepts some way or not like you know one way or the other but hearing it in relations to art um, yeah I don't know is quite interesting I mean I maybe because I'm into art and like architecture and stuff like that interesting to me so (laughs) I can't speak for everyone else yeah and just knowing that you know it's not 
the connection between um, politics and art isn't, it seems simple, but, you know, maybe <laughs> it requires more, you know, articulation than you might at first think, because it's like, oh, why? Because we do think, we say, and we believe, like, oh, yeah, our, all art is political. But, like, like how you know yeah <laughs> like in what way I guess and Benjamin is trying to answer that um mm -hmm. here um and not only saying all art is political but like art is um by nature political I guess yeah that it's sense. inherently political yes. even if the artist if the artist says it's not political it's yes still in, inherently yeah. political and for various reasons yeah yeah it's yeah like and, and maybe art produced as a political is especially political <laughs> yeah and fascist that's <laughs> <laughs> what then you mean to say fascist fascism um yeah fascism as an aesthetic <laughs> yeah. yeah and if you think about like what what did the nazis like to do they like to get a bunch of people together and do similar things nice. yeah and like make them all look the same yeah um, you know <laughs> yeah with your sorry i just discovered my friend yesterday told me about this youtube youtuber um fundy fridays or something like that and she just does videos on like fundamental christians um and it's very interesting that um the most recent video I watched talked about like the alt-right and like incels and themselves and, and how, and essentially that's like a form of an aesthetic, right? Um, <laughs> it's a very dangerous aesthetic, but it, it is like, I mean, they're essentially modern, yeah. contemporary Nazis. That's, that's what they are <laughs> in a way. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I'm trying to, <laughs> sorry. I'm... No, no, I just threw a lot on you that has like nothing to do with Walter. It's no, it does. I mean, in a way it does, but you know. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying, yeah, I mean, I mean, it's interesting to think about the way in which, um, it's just interesting to think about the way in which um, aesthetics uh, kind of, mm, bind people to certain ideas uh -huh. you know and uh -huh. have certain certain um um valences that can be uh harmful in the yeah. case of you know incels or whatever yeah. yeah it's just like oh well you know um i don't know it's like there's this common experience okay and it's like <laughs> <laughs> this is so I'm so sorry for bringing okay. that Listen, it was no this is episode. good this is, an, this is an object what are we what is that called object lesson this is an object lesson <laughs> okay we're applying what we've learned here mm. all right so you have you have these people incels mm -hmm. okay they're not at first they're not known as incels we have to create the right. idea of an incel uh -huh. right so they have these common experiences whatever they may be i don't want to get mm -hmm. into it <laughs> yeah yes. they hate women um, they do 
<laughs> for whatever reason that they perceive mm-hmm. women hate them. And um, so then instead of thinking of that as, you know, and um, instead of thinking of that as like an individual experience or as just kind of like, you know, your own personal experience, you start seeing that as like some sort of statistically significant experience and you're like oh there are more there are millions of me or whatever and there's this like culture that develops around this you know personal experience Mm -hmm. I guess and they create you know an aesthetic Mm -hmm. and then you know you 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 kind of adopt that aesthetic to become a part of that culture to create your identity and Mm -hmm. then you know, part mm-hmm. of that is this political, um, you mm-hmm. know, content, which, as you've said, is <laughs> right-wing <laughs> neo-Nazi yeah. behavior. Yeah, and so you have the incels, and then you have the fem cells, which are like women who are kind of like incels, don't believe in like, I guess, from my understanding, like women progression, like women are there. I don't really know. I don't, it's like the like trad. Yeah. And then <laughs> with the rise of the alt-right, they kind of used their platform and attracted incels and fem cells to create a bigger group, right? Because their yes. ideas kind of align in a way. They're racist, misogynist, et cetera. <laughs> um, and it's, yeah, and that's a way that's a way of understanding um that's a way of understanding your own identity and understanding like racism and stuff without thinking about material conditions you know it's a way of thinking about like oh you know um black it's like you know this is just what racism is but like like anti-blackness saying like oh black people are inferior because of they're black you mm-hmm. know and it's not like oh black people have been materially um oppressed for you know centuries. <laughs> so i mean yeah yes yeah it's just a way of it's a way of avoiding looking at the material Bigger. conditions the yeah. real if you will the ones that actually exist <laughs> yes it's just it's um it's uh foolishness frankly <laughs> i think as well walter benjamin <laughs> <laughs> what would walter say <laughs> what would walter say this is just yeah i mean basically we have to look at the material condition mm-hmm. that's what walter would say zen <laughs> and feel zen <laughs> yeah well no yeah well I hope that this was informative. I mean, it was um, for me. I don't really know about the listeners. <laughs> it was informative to me too, because I had to, you know, I was pressed into forming an concept of a concept of this essay that I didn't previously have. Yeah. And to speak about it semi-coherently. Yeah. And you actually had the time to do it versus like in school, you're juggling four, four to five classes. 
like you don't have time to actually sit down with concepts during school no because you have yeah you have other stuff to read you have four to five classes sometimes work mm -hmm. multiple jobs yeah. it's not possible <laughs> Well, anyway, in <laughs> the second part of this essay, Benjamin really focuses on film and the revolutionary potentials of film. Yeah. Um, so come back for part two to learn about that. Revolutionary aesthetics. Yes. Woo. Thank you so much, Drew. Um, Thank you, Nicole. Oh, stop it. Well. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I guess this is where we depart and say bye. So, until bye. Next until next time.